I mean, the idea when Bitcoin first came along was that you were taking the power away from the governments and the banks. Where there were internal conflicts in those countries uh, and the international community decided to help. And I can remember them coming back very thin and yellow and very weary of fighting. Welcome to episode eight of series two of the Dyson House podcast from the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. I'm your host, Cameron Christie. This week, I'm joined by award-winning expert on North Korea, Jean Lee. Jean currently serves as director of Hyundai Motor Korea Foundation Center for Korean History and Public Policy at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. She also led the Associated Press's coverage of the Korean Peninsula between 2008 and 2013, becoming the first American reporter granted extensive access on the ground in North Korea and opening the AP's Pyongyang Bureau in 2012. This week, we discuss her experiences in North Korea. Jean Lee, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. So maybe to start, if you could tell us a bit about yourself and your work. I am a journalist by training and a second generation Korean American. And I mentioned that because I do think it has some bearing on the work and the reporting that I did in North Korea. So my, my entire career has been directed toward being a foreign correspondent. And about 10 years ago, exactly 10 years ago, I was posted by the AP News Agency to Seoul to run the Seoul Bureau. But I was told on my first day of work that my real mission would be to open an office in North Korea. And at that point, there had not been any news agencies able to establish any kind of presence in North Korea. So it was certainly a challenge, uh, but it was something that I managed to do in the course of my time in Korea. And I opened that office in January 2012. I since have left daily journalism, partly because after many years on the ground in North Korea, I needed to try to understand what it was I saw. The information is so tightly controlled when it comes to North Korea that I really felt that I needed to step away from daily reporting and do my homework. And so I did take a sabbatical, and that did lead me to the Wilson Center, which is a research institute in Washington, D.C. And since April, I've been running the Korea program at the Wilson Center. As you mentioned, North Korea has been, I suppose, a subject of mystery for many, given its restrictions on reporting. And I wonder to what extent, if at all, um, granting you such extensive access could be considered a, a shift towards a more open North Korea. That's an interesting question. I did build my strategy around the North Korea-U.S. relationship because the news agency I was working for, the AP, is headquartered in the United States and is one of the world's largest news organizations. And so as part of my negotiations, I did tell the North Koreans, this would be a way for you to send a signal to the world that you're ready to change your relationship with the United States. And just to give you a little context, Kim Jong-il, the late leader, the second leader of North Korea, was still alive at the time. And I do believe that he knew that his days were numbered. He had been very ill and was grooming his third son, Kim Jong-un, to take over as leader. And I do think that part of his strategy was to improve this longstanding, very difficult and fractious relationship with the United States. And that perhaps I was part of that. Now. I was scheduled to open that bureau in December of 2012, and I was on my way to Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea, 
to open that bureau when we got word that Kim Jong-il had died. And I think that's important to keep in mind because although my negotiations were in were taking place in the last few months of Kim Jong-il's life, I ended up opening that bureau in the first few years of Kim Jong-un's rule. And I do think that some of their, his priorities changed. And we very quickly, after I opened the bureau, saw the relationship with the United States go from one that looked very promising to one that just plummeted to one of the worst places in, in recent years with as North Korea was building its nuclear program and testing its ballistic missiles in defiance of not only the United States, but the United Nations. And so we saw that relationship really take a turn after Kim Jong-un took power. We are right now at another, a new phase of outreach between the United States and North Korea or diplomatic outreach. And so it'll be interesting to see if that, if that will mean that we have more American journalists going into North Korea. Hasn't been the case yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, the average person, a lot is unknown about North Korea, obviously less so uh, to an expert such as yourself. But I wonder what some of the key misconceptions were that were disproven by your ability to examine North Korea so closely. I do try to remember my own preconceptions about North Korea because I do think that these are common preconceptions that most foreigners face because North Korea... They have a very different idea about information. For example, they believe that the strongest impression that they can make overseas is one of absolute unity. And so, for example, they want the foreign media to project an image of of soldiers marching, goose-stepping across the plaza, mass mass games dancers, and perfect synchronicity. And that, to them, conveys strength. What they don't realize is that it makes them look robotic. It makes us think that they are completely brainwashed. And so I have to say that the first time I went on my first trip to North Korea, which was 10 years ago, I was really shocked to discover that they had a sense of humor, that they were very witty, and that they could be very warm and affectionate because we just never get to see that. We very rarely see that side of their humanity reflected in the coverage. And that's because the North Korean authorities do try to keep the local people very separate from foreigners. So foreign journalists rarely get that view, that very candid view of who the North Korean people are. I think it, I think that that sense of humanity is important because we tend to car- turn North Korea into a caricature. We tend to make fun of it. We tend to think of this as this strange, bizarre country on the other side of the world. And we forget that actually they're real people whose lives are at stake and that they have the same goals and dreams and desires in many ways that that we do. And so that humanizing element was important for me and is certainly something that I always kept in mind and keep in mind when I write about North Korea. The other thing is that um, we assume that they're brainwashed because they appear so robotic in those parades and the performances but nothing could be further from the truth. I have to say that the North Koreans are feisty, opinionated, emotional. We just never get to see this. Uh, The women are tough, and I've seen so many women just berating the men that I worked with, and and it was just nice to see that they could stand up for themselves, because we often think 
that in a repressive regime, that they have no space for dissent. There's no space for political dissent in North Korea, absolutely none. However, they find ways to express their opinions in, in different forms, in different circumstances. And again, that's a humanizing element that I think we don't get to see very often. On the topic of, um, I, I suppose, that perception of brainwashing, the use of propaganda is, of course, a key factor in external perceptions of North Korea. I wonder how deeply ingrained propaganda is in North Korean society and also how perhaps less obvious forms of communication, such as entertainment, can be utilised in order to shape the government's message or dissent. The use of propaganda is something we need to have a more sophisticated understanding of. And I use the, the phrase, I use that word propaganda quite a bit, and sometimes people call me on it because I always refer to everything as propaganda. But that's because propaganda is so important in North Korea. We tend to care, use that in a pejorative term. We, we associate propaganda as being negative. But actually, in the North Korean context, it is not only positive, but it, it's people take pride in being a representative of the party or the government or the military. So, for example, their state news agency is very proud to be a mouthpiece for the government. For them, that is what news is. You convey policy uh, put forth by the government or the military or the party. So they have a very different understanding. Within the North Korean context, in a, in a country where the government tries to control information so tightly, the people understand that they need to know what the policies are and what the rules are in order to survive and thrive in that society. And so they pay very close attention to the propaganda. It serves as a guideline for how to behave. That doesn't mean that privately they don't have their own opinions and and they don't behave the way that they want, as I mentioned earlier, but it means that in a formal official setting, they understand what the policy is. And, you know, I've worked for companies when I worked for the AP, we had certain policies and guidelines. For example, it was company policy for us never to publicly state an opinion about any political candidates. And so that's, that's, a, that's a guideline for behavior that fits in with our journalistic priorities and, and ethics. And likewise, federal institutions, for example, uh, they have to be very careful what they say perhaps about their leader or their, their government, right? Because they represent the government. And I just use that as an example for how, just to equate how it is the North Koreans, they see themselves as representatives of their party or whatever institution they're speaking for. And so they're very careful what they say. And so they need to know what those policies are. That said, there's so much propaganda that it does sometimes go in one ear and out the other when it, when it comes to North Koreans. Some of it is so routine that they don't pay close attention. And one of the things that I find so fascinating is that the regime has realized they need to find more entertaining ways to convey the propaganda. So they'll use music, movies, TV dramas, performance as a way to convey the propaganda. The mass games is the biggest show on earth and the biggest example of that. We may see it as 150,000 dancers tumbling in unison, but actually it's a form of massive advertisement for the party. Every single scene reflects some measure of propaganda. It's just done in a very entertaining format. You touched on it to an extent in your um, answer there, but I wonder to what extent the centralization of information impacts your ability as a reporter to effectively do your job in a place like North Korea? 
that makes it incredibly challenging to be a journalist from the West trying to report the truth. This is a country and a regime that has a stranglehold on information and also doesn't have the same relationship with the truth as, as we may do in the West. You know, I'll just give you an example. The book that there's a certain number of hours that North Korean children have to study the history of the Kim family that has ruled North Korea since 1945. And the book that they start with opens with the line that Kim Jong-il, the second leader, the late leader, was born in Mount Pekti, which is this sacred mountain in the far north. Actually, records show he was born in Siberia. <laughs> and so, in a sense, you start with a lie from the time you're a child. It's mythology. They are very big on mythology. So it's very hard to tell what's real and what's not in North Korea. And that becomes incredibly challenging for those of us on the outside who are trying to re reflect what's real and what's truthful. The other thing is that the government of North Korea has not issued statistics in decades. So even something as basic as the country's GDP is something that we can't agree on and that we don't know for sure. And so I also have to make it clear that any of these figures that we have are estimates. They're guess, guessing, it's a guessing game. And so that when you, any other country, you can just Google basic information because each government will have at least their version of it. In North Korea, not only do they not make that information public, but then you've got to filter through all of the mythology and propaganda that isn't truthful. So it has to be one of the most challenging countries to cover for a journalist. It's a little bit like, I always equate it to peeling the layers of an onion. You're just like peeling, 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 trying to figure out what's real. And it takes a lot of effort and a lot of research and a lot of investigation to fully understand what's real and what's not. It has taken me, I have been going there for 10 years and it's been the perhaps the sole focus of my reporting these past 10 years and I still am learning things every day. And how does one go about peeling that onion? I mean, is it about forming relationships with uh, with people in the know over there? And if so, how, is, how do you go about doing that in a place that's so I suppose, hostile to, to foreign reporters? I would say that in order to report most effectively on North Korea, you have to attack it from all angles. You have to be talking to people in Seoul because South Koreans are studying North Korea very, more closely than anyone else. They share the same language. They have a different kind of access and also a different stake in understanding who the North Koreans are. You have to be speaking to people in Beijing, in Tokyo, in Geneva, at the United Nations, as well as, you know, in Washington, in, in governments that have diplomatic relations and visit North Korea regularly, and also in Pyongyang. That last piece has been the most controversial for me. For some reason, people think it's perfectly fine to cover a country from the outside. But for me, it's not responsible. It's not responsible journalism to do it just solely from the outside. I needed to get on the ground and see things for myself as well. But what you see is so controlled by the North Koreans that you have to supplement that with research and reporting outside the country as well. So that a, a well-rounded reporter will, will glean from information from a wide range of sources, including defectors who no longer 
feel that they have to spout the party propaganda. And even speaking to defectors requires quite a, bo- uh, quite a bit of critical trust building. Um, and so that is a part of it as well, building the right sources and making sure you're asking the right questions of those sources. It is the most challenging. You know, I've worked around the world. I've covered so many conflicts and there has been no assignment as tough as North Korea. It has been the toughest assignment of my life. You mentioned before the relevance of the change of leadership at the time that you began covering North Korea, or or, or at least were granted access there. I wonder since then, has there been any indication that perhaps information may become a little bit more free-flowing? Or in your experience, should we, I suppose, expect more of this difficulty to continue? There are some significant changes that have taken place over the past 10 years. The introduction of cell phones in North Korea has been huge. This was a network, the 3G network was built by an Egyptian telecoms company as a joint venture with the North Korean state. And we take it for granted because we've had cell phones for 25 years, or I think I had my first cell phone in the mid 1990s. So it's been, it's been a while now, right? For them, it's been 10 years. So they're in that infancy, but their relationship to information has changed exponentially now that they have Many of them have a device where they can call and get information. They can build networks uh, and, and they can pass information along. This is something that is a very significant change that we should recognize and acknowledge that the government has allowed. That said, they're completely separate from the outside world in the sense that that cell phone network for North Koreans does not allow them to call foreigners. Whereas when I'm using my cell phone or my mobile phone in North Korea, I can call uh, outside the country or another foreigner, but I can't call a North Korean. So it's still very divided. Uh, In terms of changes, we should also, we should be cautious because although there have been quite a number of elite North Koreans who've gone out, who've left the country and go back and forth, uh, I don't think that the changes that we're seeing right now, the momentum with the South Koreans and even with the Americans will necessarily lead to a wholesale opening up of North Korea like many people hope. I think the North Koreans will be very cautious to maintain their control over information um, within within these changes. And so I don't see it as a whole, they're gonna try to maintain control over information because they know how dangerous information can be. That said, every time you have the exchange of South Koreans coming to North Korea or North Koreans coming to to South Korea, as we're seeing right now, they learn things from that. Every time North Koreans come to South Korea, they get to see how South Koreans are living. They take that information back and share it. And that means more and more North Koreans are aware of how South Koreans are living. it is something that they can't control, although they will try to control it. Now, during your time in North Korea, you traveled, traveled extensively to farms, factories, schools and the like, which would obviously give you an unparalleled insight into things like living standards and the state of the economy. I guess firstly, just how centrally organized is the North Korean economy? And again, has that changed to any noticeable extent in your time in North Korea? Traditionally, it is very centralized. 
the major decisions for the entire country were being made in, in Pyongyang. And so, for example, even with the management of a farm, the managers would be sent from Pyongyang, and so they're not locals. This has been changing a bit. I think one thing that's so fascinating about Kim Jong-un is that he's been very vocal about his frustration with the lack of work ethic among the North Korean people. He has railed against laziness. It's really interesting. The first time we started seeing that, I think the first time I saw it was when he went to visit a, an amusement park and he was just ripping the amusement park workers uh, for not keeping the grass trimmed and basically accusing them of not doing their jobs. And so this is a different side to the North Korean leader that took us by surprise, but I think says something about his impatience with the socialist system, which over a couple generations has perhaps bred a population that doesn't want to do any more than they have to. And so he's been trying to push against that. One of the things that we've seen his regime do is try to create incentives. This is very familiar for us in the Western world, right? In, in the capitalist world. But this is something that they uh, didn't really have in their economic system. So we have seen some changes in the past you know, eight or nine years to give workers a bit more incentive. Now I have to say that even though that incentive may, they may say it's a bonus, uh, it's really, for example, some farmers that I interviewed said, well, now if we build a surplus, so for example, the way that their, their farms work, you have to meet a quota to pay back the inputs, like the fertilizer and the, the, the cost of the supplies for your farm. Once you make that back with the harvest, if you have any extra, you can now keep that and do what, with it what you want. But for, it was interesting, the farmer that I interviewed said, well, I will probably offer it back up to the party so I can get some political, as a political donation. And so that was really illuminating because I recognized then that uh, political clout is the most, one of the most important and valuable things in North Korea not just money. Political clout or winning favor with your party will bring you a lot more benefit than just having that extra money. Uh, so that's a strategic decision that people who do have a little bit of extra money will make. Uh, so we did start to see, for example, with farms, that instead of making all the decisions in Pyongyang, they decided to allow some of these managers or farm workers make the decisions for their own farms, the best decisions for their own farms. And that's a good move in the right direction. I'm wondering to what extent there is any engagement with the international economy? What, to what extent does foreign investment um, impact the North Korean economy at this stage? So during my time there, there, was, there were quite a number of relationship, trading relationships with Malaysia, with Singapore, with Vietnam, with Russia with South Korea, uh, but many of these in the past decade have shrunk down to almost nothing because of sanctions, and bilat both bilateral and those enforced by UN member states. South Korea was the biggest during this decade-long period that we call the Sunshine Era of re Reconciliation. They had a massive factory park right across the border in North Korea where they were producing uh, products that were made, produced by South Korean companies 
using North Korean labor. And so that arrangement certainly brought in quite a bit of money uh, into the, the economy. Um, but while I was there, I saw a lot of goods from other countries as well. China was, being, was the main one. Now, because of sanctions, 95% of North Korea's trade is with China. I think that one thing we should remember is that almost no country in this day and age can function without relationships or help from other countries. They just don't, no country has everything it needs. And North Korea is an extreme example of that. They have very little. And even for their factories to function, they need supplies, particularly fuel oil uh, from other countries. And so they cannot survive despite a policy of self-reliance that is core to their ideology, they cannot survive or function without relationships with other countries. Now this is, for many, many years, they relied on the, the umbrella that the Soviet Union provided, that network of countries that the, the Soviet Union provided. And when the Soviet Union fell apart, North Korea's economy fell apart as well. They suddenly did not have that network, that safety net that all of those countries were able to provide. And that's when we saw North Korea plummet into a famine in the 1990s and have to rethink how they were going to survive. So you mentioned previously the difficulty in ascertaining even simple figures like, for example, GDP. Um, now, in my research, I found that in the 1970s, North Korea's GDP was relatively similar to that of South Korea's. And now, according to CIA estimates, um, there is quite a gulf between those figures. Is it sanctions or is there some other sort of piece of the puzzle that we're missing here? So I think that that detail that you mentioned, that North Korea actually had the stronger economy until the 1970s, always blows people away. It's hard for us to imagine, but Kim Il-sung, the first leader of North Korea, had a pretty solid five-year economic plan in place. And he had the support, as I mentioned, of that Soviet network. He had a, there was a lot of support from the Soviet Union back in those, those early days. It really was the collapse of the Soviet Union that precipitated the economic downfall for North Korea. And so if you look at that, the impact that, that the collapse of the Soviet Union had on the, the economy, that's where we can start to see. And you know, obviously it was happening earlier than that. But um, that really was a turning point for North Korea. Uh, we should remember that South Korea had just an incredible, it's like a phoenix rising from the ashes emergence from the Korean War. And just my parents' generation and their parents' generation just working so hard to rebuild the country. Uh, and so it's, we should remember that South Korea's emergence as a first world country after being destroyed during the Korean War is nothing short of miraculous. And South Korea now is the, the world's 11th largest economy. Uh, but when I look back at pictures of what South Korea looked like when my parents were children, I cannot believe that this has happened in one generation. And so the contrast is exceptional, but you have one country, they, these two countries that took very divergent paths one that went hard in the path of capitalism and one that went hard in the path of communism. And then we ended up with very different results. The, the, the contrast is so extreme. And it's a contrast that I saw for myself 
shuttling between North and South Korea on a daily basis. And it was heartbreaking for me because you think they just took such a wrong turn economically. And one country is the most technologically wired, one of the most sophisticated countries in the world. And the other is just, has not progressed in many parts of the country beyond the 1950s. Just looks the way it did in the 1950s. And so those numbers are really, are very stark. And sometimes I think we don't see it because when we look at the pictures that North Korea projects, we look at the pictures that our foreign media outlets project, Pyongyang looks like a very modern city. But again, that's propaganda. It's not to say it's not real, but it doesn't reflect the economy overall. Um, when you leave Pyongyang, you see the extreme poverty, poverty of the country, no infrastructure, very little electricity, very little, no running water really, and, and very little, they have very little arable land, so they can't grow food. And you recognize that that's, uh, the, the, you can see the poverty and that helps us understand why it is Kim Jong-un um, is reaching out to the United States right now and what is a really big gamble to try to lift the sanctions and to rebuild his country's economy. Jean, I'm wondering if you have any final observations or uh, anything that you think may have been missed by my questioning. I think we're in an incredible phase of Kim Jong-un's reign right now. We saw him focus so much of his energy uh, last year, building up that nuclear program, bringing the Korean Peninsula to the brink of conflict again, and, the, and announcing that he was satisfied with where his nuclear weapons program is, saying he was done with testing, and then shifting in this, into this new phase of diplomatic outreach. And what we have now is the opportunity to take this window of opportunity with the leader of North Korea to try to change that relationship with the United States and with the outside world. Whether we're going to, to take advantage of this, I don't know, that remains to be seen. We are just at that moment now where we're watching both the United States and South Korea and other countries try to take advantage of that. But what we can't do is go back to the provocation of the past, it would be incredibly dangerous. So we're at this incredible moment in history and whether we can take advantage of it and steer it in the right direction is something that I, I think we need to pay close attention to and try to um, support. I think that there have been so many questions about whether Kim Jong-un is sincere. Will he give up his nuclear weapons? I personally don't think he will. His nuclear weapons are, are so core to his stability and his country's sense of security. However, what we do need to know is that he is sincere about understanding that he needs to change, make some changes when it comes to his country's economy, that given the poverty and the sanctions, that they cannot survive that way for 30, 30 years that he would be expected to rule. And understanding this, that they have a, a need to turn things around economically, we have to try to build our strategy around that, understanding what it is the North Korean people need and also understanding what their their concerns and their fears are about opening up. Jean Lee, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to episode eight of the Dyson House podcast. Join us next week for episode nine, and don't forget to subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. <laughs>